Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. With Count Roger establishing once and for all that Calabria was his in part, and having married the love of his life and even fought his brother for the dowry she deserved, the happy couple made their way back to Sicily, all in the first half of 1062, back to the mountaintop fortress of Troina, the place that Roger would eventually call home base for the remainder of his conquest of Sicily. But when they arrived, they realized that Troina wasn't wasn't the same welcoming place it was when he'd left. Things happened that set off the residents' anger and resentment toward their Norman overlords. And this rage would force Roger into, no doubt, one of the scariest moments of his life, the looming death of Judith of Evro. This is episode 114, and it's entitled Locking Down Troina. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Chronicler Malaterra writes, quote, Now amply supplied with arms, horses, and other things he needed, and having wisely distributed his share of the land amongst those who were faithful to him, once again the Count set off to attack Sicily with 300 men. He took with him his young wife, although she was fearful and, insofar as she dared, reluctant. End quote. So the newlyweds were back in Sicily. This, actually for clarification, was Judith's first time to the island that was central to her husband's aspirations. The year was 1062, and all seemed good enough between southern Italy's two most powerful barons, Roger and Robert de Hauteville. And as Robert led his wife into the Sicilian city of Troina, he might have prepped Judith to be welcomed with the pomp and circumstance befitting her status there. Unfortunately, Regardless of how eager the Greek Christians there had welcomed Roger just months earlier, well, those winds had shifted. The air around Troina with regards to the opinion of Roger and his Norman knights had chilled considerably since his last visit. And since his own soldiers had turned tail and ran back to Messina the moment their Saracen ally, Ibn Altimna, had died, it wasn't a good look. Watching your supposed liberators abandon you the moment something happened many miles away didn't exactly instill a great amount of confidence. Historian Richard Brown writes in his book, Count Roger of Sicily, Portrait of a Ruler, quote, The ebb and flow of Roger's campaigns in Sicily must have added an element of insecurity that local populations resented, end quote. 
Well, it's safe to say that the chill of this resentment was made quite evident when he arrived in Troina. Malaterra supports this when he says, quote, He came to Troina and was once again welcomed there by the Greek Christians who had received him previously, though not with such enthusiasm as the first time, end quote. But Roger, like his brothers before him, well, he was a wily one, and not just in the negative connotation of the term. Roger was very intelligent. As far as he was concerned, Sicily would be conquered by him, period. And thinking it through, the Val Damone was his. Messina, the surrounding towns and villages, the fertile lemon and olive orchards up and down the volcanic valley, all of it, it was his. So where now? Looking at the island as a whole seemed a little daunting, but it was necessary. So the primary pockets, we're going to take a big look at Sicily real quick here. The primary pockets of strong resistance came in the cities of Palermo, Enna, and Syracuse. And you could throw Agrigento in there as well. But he couldn't discount all of the space between them. These areas were populated by a mixture of Greek Christians and Muslim Saracens. But the farther away from the east and northeast he pushed, the denser the Muslim population became. The farther west he moved, the fewer Christians he would encounter. Now, don't misunderstand. Christians of Greek heritage had populated the entire island for literal centuries and centuries and centuries. But the Muslim line of the progression led west and southwest. So the closer you got toward those coastlines, naturally, the closer you got toward North Africa, where that supply line of Muslims came from, naturally, the more Muslims you saw. So taking the big picture view of things, Roger contemplated various paths to total domination of the island. He knew Muslims quite well by now, and they were not going to capitulate like the Greek Christians were so wont to do in southern Italy and northeastern Sicily. These Muslims were largely Berber and Arab in origin as their invasion flowed through North Africa, as I said. And as we on this podcast know by now, these were a hard people, a strong people, and a proud people. Roger was well aware by now the dangers of them. But after two centuries of Sicilian rule, and even longer by the Greek Christians, religion aside, these were a staunchly Sicilian people, Muslim or not. It was in Troina that it seems to me that his dreams of a quick conquest faded and Roger switched his approach. There in Troina, in the summer, late spring, early summer of 1062, with beautiful Judith of Evro at his side, Roger was a renewed man, and in my opinion, it was here that he cemented a new outlook on the conquest of Sicily. Roger was now ready to play the long game. But if I may, let's go back. Let's get back to Roger's entrance into Troina. Again, a chilly one, right? Like, hey, awesome. Christians in charge for once. Cool, right? But they by now have realized something about these Christians. See, these, these Normans, they weren't exactly the type of Christians they preferred as overlords. Normans, whether you were living under their thumb in post-conquest England or Robert Guiscard's Apulia and Calabria. See, these Christians weren't very um, Christian in their outlook on those in their domain. And Troina marks a moment, at least for me studying the 11th century Normans across the continent. 
Trina marks a moment when I realize that these Normans were hardly liberators, and they were hardly looking out for the release of Christians living under Muslim rule. Maybe, but I don't buy it fully. They were completely out for self-gain. You might be listening to this saying, seriously, Jonathan, I mean, I thought that was obvious from the start about these Normans. Well, yeah, it is obvious, but there's also the idea of, you know, kind of a team mentality that humans lean into. Just look at our current perspective on sports. Like here in the States, I'm personally an Indianapolis Colts football fan. And I know that every time I go and watch a game at Lucas Oil Stadium in downtown Indianapolis, I will be among like-minded individuals. And for those three hours or so, we're all a team, a team backing our boys on the field. I'm positive it's the same if you're in England rooting for your chosen soccer team or Germany or Italy or Spain. It's all the same. There's a the basic mentality at least. And we do this politically as well. So when considering the Normans in the 11th century, of course I knew they were brutal overlords, but they were brutal overlords lording over fellow Christians. Unless those Christians raised a stink, the brutality only really extended to the collection of taxes and fees. However, folks in Calabria and Apulia, and then soon in England, these places showed that if you had a Norman overlord, it didn't really matter if you were a Christian or not. They were, in many ways, like the more pathologically ruthless flavor of capitalists today. They were out for themselves in every single way, and they would exact anything from you that they needed at any time and for any reason, and you had better just suck it up, buttercup, or else. And for clarification, I vehemently deny the notion that all capitalists are pathologically ruthless. In fact, I maintain that the vast majority are not that. There are those who are, though. Now, all that said, the rumor of Norman rule had traveled far and wide, and it would be silly to think that Sicilians were entirely unaware of them. At first, when they saw a powerful Christian army on the horizon, sure, they were excited. However, even a year or two into Roger's conquest, events unfolded in a way that quickly allowed those rumors to fester. Norman conquest was too unreliable. The moment Sicilian Christians threw their support behind them, so far anyway, it hasn't panned out fully. They kept running away, leaving their new people to deal with the Muslim fallout of their disloyalty. As Richard Brown writes in his book, Count Roger of Sicily, Portrait of a Ruler, quote, The ebb and flow of Roger's campaigns in Sicily must have added an element of insecurity that local populations resented. And I had said that on the last episode as well. But to continue the quote, the Greek Christians were effectively caught in the middle of the fight, the fighting between Normans and Muslims, and it was not inevitably, certainly in the 1060s, that the Normans would win. End quote. So the people of Troina and their chilliness toward Roger de Hauteville in this new light makes pretty good sense. But what happens next? I, I don't know. As Malaterra writes mere decades after this incident, quote, unquote, the Greeks are indeed the most treacherous people. But what he says next made me chuckle, actually. He said, quote, So one day, for the sole reason that the Count had billeted his knights in their houses, and they were thus fearful for their wives and daughters, end quote. Okay, so 
I ended it there for a reason. Stop there for just a moment. It said with such pomposity that I had to laugh. So, so let me just get this right, Malaterra. For the simple, nothing wrong here reason of forcing Norman knights, unmarried or married but super far away from their wives, mind you, in Greek homes with their Greek wives and their Greek daughters. What's he say after that? Quote, they launched an attack on the few people who remained with the countess, end quote. Okay, I'll get to the situation of why Countess Judith was along uh, in Troina in a second. But Malater is actually saying that the people of Troina were absolutely unreasonably treacherous toward Roger because Roger forced his knights into homes to be roomed and boarded presumably at the expense of the Greek man who owned said home. Where have I, where have I heard that before? Okay, wait. Um, first, let's just point out the obvious here. Forcing non-Normans to feed and house an army with absolutely no stipend, an army nobody asked for, mind you, in some, in some vain attempt by the guy in charge to accumulate more wealth and glory and land for himself, is somehow a bad thing to fight against? Treacherous even? All right, so before I say where I'd, I've heard that before, let me start off by saying that to my listeners in the UK, I love you guys, you know that, hopefully by now. Though I love my United States, I'm quite the Anglophile. And I love the rich history and legacy, the English and the wealth and the Scottish and the Irish, all of you, right? I love studying it. In fact, about two-thirds of my genetic material trace their roots to North Central Ireland and that little uh, corridor between Manchester and Liverpool. So I'm not attacking anyone listening, no more than I'd attack someone living today for owning slaves. It's, that's all silly in my opinion. So don't take offense to this, but <laughs> quartering British redcoats at our own expense is one of the primary reasons listed in the greatest breakup letter in human history, the Declaration of Independence. So crazy King George III ordered just that. It seems, having learned about Roger's decision, <laughs> that's an age-old pomposity I, for one, can't possibly fathom how that it's ever okay to force soldiers into other people's homes at their expense. And here's Malaterra telling us it was the people of Troina who were off their rockers when they rose in revolt toward Roger for doing so. I just can't see how that's a bad thing, right? It seems, so let's continue. I'm sorry. It seems the rebels chose their time wisely, waiting for Count Roger to lead a small raiding force out of the city to collect supplies and scout more of the area. It was approaching the winter of 1062. So by now, right? So supplies would no doubt make this time in Troina a bit more comfortable, obviously. Mere miles away, however, with a sense of safety at his back, Count Roger received a frantic messenger carrying word that the people had revolted and that the last he heard of the Countess was that she was well-guarded but under serious threat. Now, hearing of Judith's peril, Roger immediately turned his party around and rushed back to Troina. Fighting his way into the gates and then again through the streets to reach the central citadel, the city's highest point encompassed by its own wall, Roger tore a bloody path to get to his new wife. 
Having reached her, he was able to turn back around and assess his situation. And it was rather grim, as you can imagine. The city itself had the resources to weather the winter out, like it typically would. However, supplies within the citadel would run far shorter than needed, especially due to the fact that Roger assumed that nobody outside the citadel would be taking in any Norman knights anymore. Obviously. Roger and his men, as well as Judith and her small entourage, found themselves in some, in some pretty dire straits by January of 1063. Malaterra writes, quote, For the time being, they were kept within the city, defending the hilltop, for if they went outside to forage, they were visible to every eye. If he went out with a few men to try and plunder, they would be captured. All from the count to the lowliest follower were equally weighed down with want. End quote. In fact, Malaterra tells us that even clothing was in short supply, and given that the winter of 1062 to 1063 was a chillier-than-usual winter, well, he tells us between the two of them, Roger and Judith, were forced to share a cloak to keep warm. Each Norman knight, we're told, did their best to hide their sense of despair so as not to cultivate a culture of rebellion toward their count. But Malaterra tells us that the Countess suffered greatly. He writes, quote, The young Countess, although she could quench her thirst with water, did not know how to cure her hunger, except with tears and by sleep, for she had nothing else. End quote. Now, this is a bit of 11th century chauvinism showing, but it serves the overall point just fine. We get it. From Countess Judith on down below on the hierarchy, Everyone was terribly hungry. But those outside the inner citadel were living large, it seems anyway. We're told that the whole of Sicily heard of their bravery and their siege against Count Roger, that they happily supplied the people of Troina with what they needed for the winter, more than what they already had. Support, it appears, came in abundance, though military support was interestingly omitted for whatever reason. If there was ever an opportunity to take down Roger and possibly the entire Norman war machine in Sicily, it was the 1062 siege of Troina against Count Roger. Alas, no one came with weapons to help out, which I find kind of sad and short-sighted if I'm trying to think of their, you know, the Sicilian side of it. There's one particular moment when Malaterra most like that he most likely made up, but it makes for some fun reading nonetheless, so I'm going to share it here. <laughs> he narrated an incident when Count Roger rode out ahead of his men one day in desperation, and he rode directly into the center of the enemy's formation outside the citadel gates. After the initial shock and watching Roger cut down a few Saracens and Greeks who rose against him, Roger was unseated from his horse and was grabbed by several men. Here's where it gets a bit fictional, if you ask me. Quote, In this perilous situation, the Count, mindful of the strength he once had, wielded his sword, which he carried in his belt, as though he was cutting a grassy meadow with a scythe, swinging it vigorously all around him. He killed a number of men and was saved by the help of God and his own right arm. He made such a slaughter of the men he had slain around him like trees in a thick forest uprooted by the wind. End quote. Come on, that's awesome. Now, did it happen? No clue. 
not likely in quite that way, but even if that's an embellishment of the truth, it still shows that Roger was captured in a melee and fought his way free, which is impressive. But the ending is actually the best part of the story. Malaterra tells us that, terrified, the enemy retreated back into the city, away from the citadel gates. But here's the bit about Roger that just, that just breathes John Rambo. Quote, He himself did not wish to be seen hurrying away as if he was afraid. And so, with his horse dead, he walked back towards his men carrying the saddle. End quote. <laughs> Roger de Hauteville, everybody. That's amazing. What a great line. So four months dragged on. Those Normans inside the Citadel grew hungrier and hungrier, weaker and weaker with every passing day, while the besiegers grew fatter and fatter and stayed warm and alert. The winter of 1062 to 1063 was the worst case scenario for the Normans in Sicily. In fact, it's a lot like Valley Forge in American history when General George Washington had to keep his men vigilant and focused while a smallpox epidemic ravaged the American camp, on top of it being the worst winter on record at the time. But, like George Washington, Robert de Hauteville would find a way. And that way came through alcohol, actually. So yeah. About that. <laughs> As many of us already know, Muslims consider the consumption of alcohol quite sinful. I did a little digging because it's just how I am, and I, I wanted to know more about it so I could understand. I, I am not Muslim, and therefore I need more uh, uh, research to be done to understand things. And I found a few passages in the Quran itself that talks about alcohol consumption. I'll share one in an effort to merely provide source references for why the next part of Roger's story occurred the way it did. Now, apologies in advance if I don't say the citation properly, if I mispronounce something. Admittedly, the Quran is completely out of my cultural purview, but hey, I'm trying here. So in the, in the Quran 2.219, it reads, quote, They ask you about wine and gambling, say, in them is great sin and benefit for the people, but their sin is greater than their benefit, end quote. Now, however, I had a mini revelation myself in researching this. Prior to research, excuse me, prior to searching for answers about how the Quran perceives alcohol, I'd always heard that Muslims were forbidden from drinking it. That's not actually the case. I mean, sometimes it is in some Muslim nations, just refer to Qatar during the last World Cup, there was the issue with alcohol. But though many Muslims do adhere to a strict ban, uh, not, I guess it's not illegal unless the nation that they're in actually says it's illegal. I don't know. The Quran itself actually contains no outright legal or spiritual ban of, on alcohol that I can find, and it provides no punishments for those who drink it. It seems to me that alcohol is merely frowned upon. Now, it's really frowned upon, but it's just frowned upon. But I have to admit, I appreciate the sentiment behind it. The Quran advises people that if you want to be successful, then you must avoid alcohol at all costs. And if you think about approaching prayer, you must be of sound mind. Otherwise, your prayers will mean absolutely nothing because it may be the alcohol talking and not you, not your heart. Either way, I hope this added a little context to what Roger noticed next 
about his Greek and Muslim besiegers. Greeks and Lombards and Italians and Normans, well, they loved their wine. Muslims, they tended to steer clear of the stuff. But when it's cold outside and you're away from the warmth and support of your homes, you can't help but rely on whatever's available to you to ease the suffering even for a matter of hours. That's not, to, that's not even considering the amount of stress that all of these men besieging Count Roger must have been under. So as the weeks went on, Roger noticed from the walls that he manned, yes, it said he stood guard, uh, guard duty alongside his men during the siege, another reason why his men loved him so much, but he noticed that the Greeks as well as Muslims that winter were engaging in a bit of wine themselves to help cut the cold breezes of January and February. And knowing about the general Muslim aversion to alcohol and know and how those who drink tend to have a pretty low tolerance to the stuff, well, a plan started to hatch in his clever Hopeville brain. One night, as the evening drinking had gone on for a few hours, Malaterra writes, quote, Under cover of a freezing fog, which was ideally designed for this purpose, he and his men stole silently into their enemy's camp. Falling on the unprotected men, sword in hand, they seized their fortress. Many of the enemy were killed and many others captured. End quote. Roger took advantage of exactly why the Quran advises people to avoid alcohol in the first place. Both Greeks and Muslims alike had become slower in their reaction times, slothier in their decision making, and probably some had passed out already in an effort to sleep the frigid night away. In the aftermath of the surprise attack, having secured the city of Trena once again, fighting his way from the inside out, a man by the name of Porinus was brought to Roger. Now, Porinus was the Greek Sicilian who led the initial charge against Judith and her Norman protectors, as well as the mastermind behind the siege itself. Having the clout to be such a figure, I'd assume that Roger and Perinus had already met and probably negotiated and, you know, politicked together in the past. That said, Roger wasted no time in publicly hanging Perinus for his treachery. Along with Perinus, Malatari tells us, Malatera tells us, other leading figures, Greek and Muslim alike, were hanged as well. It was a swift and ignoble end to leading figures in Trena who merely felt wronged by these Norman conquerors when they, forced, when they were forced to feed and board Norman men in their homes with their wives and daughters. Was Perinus a, a traitor, a terrorist, or a protector? I suppose that depends on which side of this conquest you're on. History, we're told by folks like Malaterra, is a simple good guy versus bad guy narrative. But I think the listeners of this podcast know better than that. The winter of 1062 to 1063, again, was a bleak one for everybody, but for Count Roger de Hopeville specifically and his lovely wife, Judith, along with his Norman loyalists, which included, by the way, two notable figures worth mentioning here. These two figures would play big roles elsewhere uh, in the future, but they were also there at the Siege of Troina in 1062 to 63. His nephew, Serlo II, a man that John Julius Norwich in his book, The Other Conquest, describes as, quote, already the ablest of Roger's commanders and a Hopeville to his fingertips, end quote. 
And then there was a man we've come across briefly already, though we've mentioned him fighting at the Battle of Manzikert some eight years into this particular future. His name was Roussel de Bayol, and he was a Norman adventurer that I personally wish could have afforded his own chronicler. Roussel de Bayol headed south and fought alongside Rich, or excuse me, fought alongside Roger during the conquest of Sicily, but at some point, Roussel was exiled by Roger, which is how he found himself a mercenary gig in the purse of the Byzantine emperor, Romanus IV Diogenes, just in time again for the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. So having sorted the situation out in Troina and collapsed any rebellious tendencies in their hearts, Roger helped rebuild the city from any destruction it suffered during the siege. He also refortified its defenses, stocked its stores, pushed a few miles outward to subdue the local population for a spell. Why? Because what he didn't want any local to know was that this campaign had absolutely drained him of virtually everything. He was down to maybe a hundred knights, and those these fierce pony boys had no other choice in the darkest moments of that winter than to kill and consume their own horses. Though victorious, Roger was still quite desperate. He needed to disappear for a month or so and return to Calabria. And in a move that shook me, given the context of his previous six months, Roger left Judith once again inside Troina. Yeah, but he did, and it actually worked out in the end. But yeah, I, I don't get that. That said, Malaterra, according to historian John Julius Norwich, quote, writes approvingly of the way in which Judith now assumed command of the defenses, end quote. So Malaterra, Malaterra specifically tells us, quote, Although she was still a very young woman, his wife took charge of the castrum with great energy and care, going round it daily to see what needed to be done and ensuring that they remained on their guard. She encouraged the others whom her lord had left behind when he went away, and to ensure that they served her properly, she spoke kindly to them, promising them many rewards when her lord returned, end quote. This is, of course, a nod to the more central role women played in medieval times. Tucked between the pages and lines of these old texts, there is a palpable appreciation for these women who rose to the challenge of leading men, leading truly dangerous men. That's not nothing, if you ask me, and it flies in the face of centuries of historical chauvinism shown to women. It was as if Roger, though, was never gone, because as soon as he left, he seemed to return. It truly was a quick visit to Reggio, to gather money, food, supplies, men, and most, and arguably most important, as I said, horses. Back in Traina, locked, stocked, and loaded, Roger was ready to resume his conquest. However, as happy as everyone was to be reunited and supplied, all the horses equipped and now war-ready within days of their arrival in Traina, Roger gets debriefed on how the rest of Sicily reacted to him breaking out of his siege. It looks like Sicily itself woke up all at once to the Norman threat, and they mobilized. And they didn't just mobilize, actually. They asked their Muslim rulers across the southern Mediterranean Sea in what they called at the time Ifriqiya, which is what, obviously, 
uh, we call Africa today, but specifically the modern country of Tunisia. Malaterra writes, quote, Some 500 Arabs and Africans who had come from their homelands to aid the Sicilians as mercenaries were stationed at Castro Giovanni, end quote. Now, this 500, stout a force as it was, was a mere drop in the bucket compared to all the other Arab and African mercenaries stationed in the western and southern parts of the island. Now, Castro Giovanni is merely 40 miles or so southwest of Troina, and it is very, very near Anna, the impregnable mountain fortress of the most powerful emir in Sicily, Ibn al-Hawas. Roger prepares for war and marches out of Troina, once again leaving Judith in charge. While his army lumbers along, he sends his nephew Serlo II out ahead with about 30 knights to do nothing but show up and, you know, be a nuisance to the Saracens stationed there. I don't know, ride around, scream some nonsense, feign attacks, but quickly withdraw, just to annoy the ever-living crap out of them. And if they sally forth and attack, all the better. If it wasn't clear yet, Roger had the utmost respect and trust in his young nephew, Serlo. Now, Roger's plan was that word would be sent when Roger had set up the army just out of sight, lying in wait. When Serlo gets the update, he and his men are to ride full bore into the enemy, having already had a few hours to fray their nerves. This, of course, will force a Saracen response. When the Saracens enter the battlefield, Serlo is to order an immediate retreat, but he's got to sell it. The Saracen response, though, was a bit fiercer than they'd expected, and Malaterra tells us that by the time Serlo's band of knights made it to the ambush site, the ambush site of Roger, by the way, quote-unquote, only two of them were still unwounded. Now, odds tells us that Serlo was most likely wounded, having two of them remaining unscathed, but the records don't indicate this, and we'll see him again, so it wasn't a terrible wound we can presume, if he was. However, Roger was incensed when he saw the state of Serlo's men, and he ordered a full attack with all the rage and hatred he had in him. The Battle of Castro Giovanni had an odd-shaped battlefield because the Saracen forces were in a state of constant and urgent retreat at that point, while Roger's forces were under orders to eliminate every single man they could lay their hands on. This battle's battlefield was actually a one-mile-long stretch of road leading right into the fortress walls outside of Enna. And as Roger saw their gates shut, he triumphantly ordered that his army withdraw back to the side of the ambush to regroup and reassess. And check this out. Along the way, his men were to gather anything and everything they could from the dead and dying Saracens, literally carpeting the road. It's estimated that up to a thousand Saracens lay dead after the Battle of Castro Giovanni, but no one knows for sure, obviously. But see, Roger wasn't finished. Something outside Castro Giovanni switched in Roger, and he was acting with a sense of retribution at this point, more so than at any other point in the entire conquest as a whole. Malaterra writes, quote, Wishing to do the Sicilians as much harm as possible, he set out to plunder Calavuturo, end quote. There was a palpable sense of rage in Roger's actions around this time, which I'm quite curious about. 
I'm also disappointed I can't provide a reason for it either. So if you know something I don't, please reach out and let me know. All I can really realize is he's had a stressful few months, obviously, and breaking out of the siege and uh, his wife's life being endangered initially and then throughout this. I mean, he had a lot of stress. So I'm just wondering if he was just, he was at the point where he broke, but that's the best I can come up with. We're also told though that Roger became curious himself about Western and Southern Sicily, places he'd never laid his eyes on. So with Saracens cowed inside the walls of Castro Giovanni, he pushed by Enna itself, making it as far as Butera, 30 miles almost straight south of Enna, capturing vast herds of cattle, which was actually a boon for the Normans in Sicily. Meat, milk, clothing, bone tools. I mean, cattle was wealth actual wealth in the 11th century, I would say just this side of land. Making camp at Anator, he considered his situation at this point. He was close to the southern coast of Sicily, but the summer heat was getting worse by the day. He had a choice to make. It was the fact that his horses were dying from overuse and lack of adequate water for the large beasts that he decided to turn around and head back to Troina, where he had plenty of space and peasants to handle the new herds of cattle he's returning with. So, with that, Roger returned to his wife Judith, who had been holding down the fort, literally, while he was gone. It wasn't all bad, though. In fact, things were, at this point, looking up for Roger in Sicily as of late. You know, Norwich even adds, quote, Plunder was good, and the storerooms at Traina began to fill up nicely again, end quote. This was the summer of 1063, and looking back a mere six months Roger must have seen a vast turn of events and fortunes. No one would have thought that he'd be knocking on the door of Enna by this time. I mean, they really weren't supposed to live through the siege. I I don't know if I can stress that enough. Everything was against him. So there in Traina, word came that the forces coming from North Africa were far worse and far bigger than they'd initially heard. 1063 would be the make-or-break year for Roger's conquest, on more fronts than just Traina and Castro Giovanni. And on the next episode, we'll see one of the most epic battles in all of Norman history. The green banners of Islam will be marching Roger's way soon enough. And if we know anything about the Hopevilles, (laughs) Roger wouldn't miss it for the world. And I can't wait to tell you about it. <laughs>